You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Third Degree. I'm Ellie Honig. Well, welcome back, everybody. It's another Friday episode. Everyone knows my favorite episodes because I have company and I love having someone else to kick things around with. Today, we welcome back young Ellie, Ellie Nakmani. Ellie, great to see you again. Hey, great to be here, Ellie. Thanks so much for having me on, as always. So you have just finished finals, law school finals, correct? That's correct. Glad to be done. It was mostly administrative law and public law classes this semester, which had a fun feel to it, but really learned a lot. Well, only you, I think, would describe administrative law as, quote, fun. And that's why we love you here on the podcast, your enthusiasm for all things legal. How, how do you feel? I remember this real sense of just deep relief when finals were over. I think it's a combination both of relief and also, uh, okay, so what now? So I don't start my summer job for another couple of weeks. And there's this immense downtime. So, you know, obviously, we're remote, we're home. So I was walking around the house yesterday and just thinking, well, I've got nowhere to be for a minute or two. And <laughs> So, you know, you just walk around, get something to eat or something. Yeah, hop on a podcast now and then. I got to ask you because I have very visceral memories of this. I assume now your grades just pop up on some sort of web page or something. You hit refresh or something, right? And that's exactly right. And funny you mention it because I watched the paper chase. Again, you know, time on my hands now. I watched the paper chase with my mom and they sent the grades in the mail at the end, which is just such a different experience. I couldn't even conceive of it. Well, I'm about to validate myself as, as quote, old Ellie, as the producers on this show like to call me. And I deserve it because... I was the paper era as well. And I very clearly remember they would put our grades on like like a uh, serrated form, stick it in our mailbox, which was in the commons where the cafeteria was. And you would go heart pounding to your mailbox and pull out this form. Then you have to struggle to like rip it off, rip off the serrated thing without ripping your grades. And then you would just open it up and they'd be right there in like dot matrix ink. So uh, gosh, do I remember doing that? that that's nerve wracking stuff. Well, listen, we know you're going to ace your finals. You're going to be fine. And you're moving into the professional world this summer. That's right. And so, you know, this will be my last episode. Uh, it's been the most wonderful experience being with you this semester. You know, this kind of has a Steve goes to college on Blue's Clues feel to it. But um, I'm just so grateful for having had the opportunity to be on. This has really been fantastic. It's been great. We have a lot still to talk with you about. So I wanted to start today. I know that you in particular are a connoisseur, so to speak, of the federal courts. You know a lot about the federal courts. And so we've been talking on this podcast earlier in the week about the idea of a judicial commission. And first of all, the main headline issue is the possibility of Supreme Court expansion. I want to get your quick take on this. How likely, forget about whether it's a good idea, bad idea, just how likely, one to a hundred, zero to a hundred, 
do you think it is that we will have more than nine justices on the Supreme Court at any point in the next four years? If I could put it at a number less than zero, I would, but I would put it at least or at most zero. You know, I think it's a great fundraising tool, but also any serious person in Washington probably realizes where this goes. You know, Chicago law professor Adam Chilton and and a few others recently published a piece called The End Game of Court Packing. And they did a, a simulation where they found the median result of repeated partisan court packing is you could get up to like 23 justices within 50 years or 39 justices within 100 years. And I don't think anybody really wants to see that. Yeah, uh, I I share your skepticism. I I think the chances are 0.5, maybe out of 100 or something, as I talked about on my last third degree episode. It's interesting, too, when you think about the numbers, how many? Let's say that Democrats, certain Democrats, certainly not all, but the Democrats who want this got this. You you would have to ask them, how many justices do you want? And I think the honest answer, given that it's a 6-3 conservative majority right now, would be four. Um, right? Because that would make it then 7-6 and you'd have 13 and it would go back and forth. And, and you know, look, again, I, I don't want to get too deeply into the desirability of it, but I think practically it's sort of a dead letter. However, we do have this commission with 36 members, brilliant people on this commission from conservatives and liberals alike, Republicans, Democrats. It's really a remarkable group. And I'm wondering what your views are on, are there more feasible, more achievable types of judicial reforms that we could get out of this? I think there might be. So what President Biden did is he brought together a bunch of law professors. And so they're going to think, you know, different technical procedural type stuff. I'll give two possibilities. One might be this thing called jurisdiction stripping, which is essentially Congress passes a law and says, you know, no federal court can hear a case as to the constitutionality of this law. If this was passed during Obamacare, you might not have had court cases on Obamacare if there's a fear that the court might strike it down. There's another one that's called the shadow docket. And there was actually a a House hearing on this recently. The term was coined in 2015 by Professor Will Bode at Chicago. This is the set of opinions that's issued by the court without any oral argument or standard process. Usually these are unsigned orders. There's a few things you could do here. You could make the justices disclose their votes. You could establish kind of a a separate procedure for certain types of cases. Usually death penalty cases are are on the shadow docket. Or you could address, you know, there are nationwide injunctions in lower courts, which usually lead to cases or orders in the shadow docket. So, So let's take those one at a time. Jurisdiction stripping. So let me give you my sort of, you know, if I was back in law school, my response to that, and I guess it hasn't evolved much. I'll give you my response now. So Congress will pass a law saying, okay, courts, including the Supreme Court, you all cannot take and rule on a certain type of cases, right? Why would that not be immediately challenged in the courts? And why would the courts not immediately say that's unconstitutional? Congress, separation of powers, balance of powers, checks and balances. You, Congress, can't tell us, the courts, to keep our darn myths off of some kind of case. In other words, wouldn't any effort by Congress to say courts you can't decide certain cases, immediately be struck down by the courts. This feels like a question on a federal court's final exam. Um, But the the answer simply is that in Article 3 of the Constitution, the Constitution gives Congress the power to set what the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court or what the federal courts generally is in the first place, subject to uh, this this one thing called original jurisdiction, which is a, a whole separate issue. But basically, Congress can tell the federal courts what they can and can't hear. So it has to do this by law. So what you can do by law, you can also do in the other way. And if you say in certain instances, you know, you you can't hear X, Y, Z case, subject maybe to some other constitutional restraints like due process, the consensus is they probably can do that to some extent. Huh. But but they can't. I mean, look, if you take it to the extreme and Congress just decided we want more power 
you know, Congress couldn't just pass a law saying, hey, court, you're out of business. Your jurisdiction is now zero. There's obviously got to be some sort of limit on that. Well, I, I guess it depends on what the composition of the court is, right? If, if you just look at what the Constitution says, outside of the original jurisdiction, I, I think it's an open question. But really, Article 3 gives Congress the power to set what the jurisdiction is of the federal courts. Okay, now, Let's talk about this shadow docket. And this is something I think that people don't understand exactly what it is. Like you said, Ellie, it, it's these cases which get decided by the Supreme Court in what we call orders. They're sometimes one line. They're sometimes one paragraph. We saw a couple pretty high profile examples of this. If people remember when Donald Trump and his supporters were challenging the election results in certain cases, the big decisions that came down from the Supreme Court rejecting those were part of this shadow docket. They were one paragraph orders. They were partially signed or unsigned. A couple dissenters said who they were. There's no typical process and fanfare, right? You don't have your full sets of briefs and your oral arguments with the quill pens and all of that, or nowadays on Zoom. But what puts a case on the shadow docket as opposed to the main docket? How does that work? Yeah, so usually this is an emergency appeal. Often the party that will get, I don't know if you'd call it deference, but um, the court will be most likely to take a look is if the federal government through you know, what's called the Office of the Solicitor General is looking for emergency relief on some issues. So as you mentioned, right, you had the election law cases. A lot of the COVID restriction cases came through on the shadow docket. But historically, this has been um, usually death penalty or, or other kind of criminal procedure cases, and sometimes what are called nationwide injunctions by district courts where, you know, one judge in, say, Texas or Hawaii or somewhere says, I'm issuing this order and it applies to the whole country. We saw this on a lot of President Trump's executive orders. And so do you think there's a reasonable chance this commission comes back and says we should limit that shadow docket? I think it might. So there was a, a recent panel of the House that they did kind of a, an event talking about this, and there seems to be bipartisan interest in a variety of, of different reforms. But this is one that crosses party lines. And I think particularly during the Trump administration, the idea of the nationwide injunctions, so, you know, not the actual shadow docket, but what leads to the shadow docket was seen by a lot of conservatives as problematic. And so maybe there's, there's a slight opening to the door. Maybe there's some deal to be struck on the shadow docket. But We'll see what, what the law professors come up with and we'll see what Congress does with it. Yeah, and I want to throw one more at you because this is on the commission's plate as well. Life tenure, right? The Constitution, now, you know, look, you'd have to amend the Constitution, I believe, because the Constitution says that all federal judges serve during good behavior, meaning basically um, unless and until they're impeached or retire or die. As I've noted before, you know, when the Constitution was drafted, life tenure was much, much shorter, probably about half of what it is today. So people have argued that it wasn't intended to be this way, that people weren't intended to spend five decades, potentially. We're seeing federal judicial nominees now in their 30s. This is in front of the commission. I, th I, I put this in the category also of not going to happen because it essentially requires a constitutional amendment. There are some workarounds, but to be real about it, it would need a constitutional amendment where you need two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states. I mean, <laughs> this ain't getting that. But let me let me make you now, you know, sort of omnipowerful, Ellie, and, and you don't have to amend the Constitution. It's up to you. You get to press one of two buttons, right? We're, we're restarting our country right now. 
life tenure for federal judges or something less than life tenure, some defined period of terms. Which do you think is the better policy? No, I I believe in life tenure for federal judges. Um, I I think an independent judiciary is important. And moreover, look, this this is a problem I think that we're addressing on the back end. But I think you'd want to look more at the front end of folks who are, say, in their 40s um, or 50s getting on the Supreme Court are only getting there because the Senate is confirming there. So I think the the best remedy for this is not so much the legal or constitutional, but it's the political remedy. If folks have a problem with people confirming, you know, justices or or federal appeals court judges who are younger, you know, you should tell your senator that. And so there's there's a question of, you know, is this we don't want people who are confirmed at a younger age because I think it's bad generally, or I don't want people who are confirmed at a younger age of, you know, justices who are appointed by presidents of the opposing party. But if, if it's a general principle, you know, tell your senator, hey, we need more experienced people on the federal courts. Yeah, it's interesting. It's always it's, it's always one of those moments where you feel your age for me. Like, I get this sometimes when I see a baseball player, Fernando Tatis, and I'll go, Fernando Tatis? His dad, I remember his dad being a rookie. Now he's a, he's a superstar, his son. And in fact, by the way, for baseball fans out there, I had the ultimate moment of that when I saw Mike Yastrzemski, who's a star player on the San Francisco Giants. And I thought, oh, wow, Carl Yastrzemski's son. Cool. And then I was like, wait a second. It's his grandson. So I felt super old. And I feel the same way when I see 38-year-olds and 42-year-olds being nominated to the federal bench. But look, this has become the strategy now. And we're seeing it on the federal level. We're seeing it on the state level in New Jersey, where I live. The last two nominees to the New Jersey State Supreme Court out of seven have been people who are 40 or under. They have to do seven years and then they get life tenure. But the idea is we're going to control these seats until 2055, until 2060. But this has become part of the political battle now. So we were discussing before a really interesting question that you raised that, that I want to kick around. Will we ever again see a U.S. Supreme Court nominee put up by a president of one party and confirmed by a Senate controlled by the other party? I certainly, I think everyone would say, I hope the answer is yes. But given how things have gone recently, going back to the Merrick Garland nomination, it's starting to look a little doubtful that we will ever get back to that. What do you think of that, Ellie? Is there hope that we will have, let's say the Republicans take the Senate in 2022. Does Joe Biden have any chance of getting anyone through between that and 2024? Well, and I think there there are multiple reforms you can do with the Senate confirmation process, right? Just as a general matter, whether it's judges or executive branch officials, Professor Ann Joseph O'Connell at Stanford has written about um, some problems with, with confirmation. But I think Ellie, the answer here is probably that you you may have to reconceive of who can get confirmed when you have a Senate controlled by another party. So there was a, a minute, and I, I think this was maybe a day or two, um, when President Obama was considering who to nominate for the seat that was vacated uh, when Justice Scalia passed. And there was a thought that he might actually nominate Brian Sandoval, who was the Republican governor of Nevada, more of a moderate type. And, you know, Mitch McConnell says, eventually Merrick Garland is, is nominated. He says, I will not confirm, you know, Merrick Garland. You wonder if there might have been an opening if, if Sandoval was the nominee. And so we have to recall what Senator McConnell did with Merrick Garland was actually extraordinarily risky, right? You, you could have gotten, let's say Hillary had won the election and the Senate went to the Democrats. You could have gotten a much younger, much more liberal justice. And so you you can wait and hope for the best, but you know some senators and the current president might come together and say, you know, we're both not so sure of, of what our prospects are in the coming election. 
yeah, you know, we'll we'll both compromise. We'll take somebody more middle of the road. Now, middle of the road might mean something different for for different people. But Brian Sandoval, right, would have would have been probably more to the right than uh, Merrick Garland may have been confirmed in a Republican Senate. Right. That's interesting to to think all these counterfactuals, right? What if? And then Garland would he be? You know, he never would have become AG, or maybe he would have if he didn't get through. I mean, it is there's so many scenarios here. One thing that I will say, and I think it's important that people understand this, that does make it maybe more possible or probable than people may think that we will see a cross-party nomination and confirmation is the filibuster. Everyone's paying a lot of attention to the filibuster nowadays, which which essentially says you need 60 votes to get anything through the Senate. That does not apply to federal judicial nominees. They, quote-unquote, nuked the filibuster for judicial nominees. For some reason, that expression nuked always has to apply to getting rid of the filibuster. But they nuked the filibuster at first as it relates to the lower courts, meaning to federal district court, trial court judges, and to the federal courts of appeals. And then it was nuked with respect to the Supreme Court when it came to Donald Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch. And in fact, all three of Donald Trump's nominees got through with less than 60 votes, could have been filibustered under the old set of rules, but got in with somewhere between 50 and 60 votes each. So I I, I suppose that increases the chance that we have a cross-party confirmation and nomination. What do you think of that? Was it was it the, the right idea to get rid of the filibuster when it comes to federal court nominees? Well, I think this was a decision that Harry Reid made right in the in the mid-2010s when President Obama wanted to get a number of judicial nominees through and uh, the Republicans in the Senate were, were holding it up. Then there was the question, you know, do you get rid of it for the Supreme Court? And I think for the Republicans, they they took the position that, you know, President Trump had nominated at that time Judge Neil Gorsuch. And given his kind of impeccable credentials and qualifications, you know, if if you're not going to confirm Neil Gorsuch with more than 60 votes, you're probably not going to confirm anyone. You know, you have to remember that Neil Gorsuch was actually not the most, you know, I guess, prototypically conservative judge that President Trump could have picked, right? There were some chats that you might see Bill Pryor from the 11th Circuit, and he was not picked. So look, it's a political calculation, and they wanted to get Justice Gorsuch confirmed, and they did. So looking back, I don't don't think too many regrets, but we'll see what the next, you know, 20, 25 years look like. And and maybe the answer to that question for someone like Senator McConnell is different. I don't know the answer. And, And Gorsuch has surprised in some cases. He has been conservative as expected, but he has joined with the liberal and at times other justices on the LGBTQ Equal Rights Civil Rights Act case, on the Trump taxes case. So there there are consequences to this. The last thing I want to discuss when it comes to the court is, is Justice Breyer, who interestingly went on record at Harvard Law School. I don't know if you went or if this was a Zoom thing a month ago where he came out fairly clearly against the idea of court expansion. But of course, all eyes are now on him. He is the oldest member of the Supreme Court right now. I think he's 82 years old. And so there is pressure being put on him. I don't know what's being said to him directly, but certainly in the media to retire. Because if you think about it, the window for Joe Biden to nominate and get somebody through the U.S. Senate is as, well, in one sense, it's as thin as the 2022 midterms when the Senate could could well flip over to Republicans. But it's even narrower than that. It's a senator leaving or, or passing away and being replaced uh, away from his window closing. So there is some pressure on Breyer to step down. And, and I think what we're starting to see more of is what I'll call the brokered retirement or the negotiated retirement. Anthony Kennedy, right? He, he agreed to step down and there's been some reporting on what went into that and that opened up the space for Justice Kavanaugh. 
So this seems to be coming more and more the norm. Of course, obviously people will pass away and that can't be controlled. But it seems that now there's sort of this lining up. And what bothers me about that is it comes with a premise or an underlying assumption of certain judges are on certain political teams, right? And there seems to be this appeal to Justice Breyer. And and I think to a lesser extent, there was an appeal, public appeal to, to Justice Kennedy. And at times, even at the end of Trump's term, people were putting this out there. Again, I don't know what was being said directly, but Thomas might think about stepping down because he's, I think, the oldest of the conservatives, and that'll give Trump a fresh, younger nominee. But what bothers me is this underlying assumption that that justice is on this team. That justice is on that team. What do you make of that, Ellie? Yeah, Justice Breyer was very explicit, I think, during the speech that you talked about at, at Harvard about we now talk about justices, you know, as, oh, so-and-so was appointed by a Republican, so-and-so was appointed by a Democrat. I think there are different things that go into why justices retire and what their level of comfort is. I think the factor that may be weighing the most in favor of Justice Breyer retiring now whether it's this term or next term, right? You, you don't have any chance of Senate flip, at least through election, before the, the end of, of 2022. The big question is, who's going to be my replacement, right? And so Justice Kennedy was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, who was one of his former clerks. And actually, the, the pick before that, Justice Gorsuch, was also a former Kennedy clerk. It's looking now like there's there's something of an emerging consensus or a developing consensus that um, Justice Breyer's replacement might be Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. So I think she's on the District of D.C. now. She's been nominated to the D.C. Circuit. She's a former Justice Breyer clerk. So if she's the replacement, you know, and not that that would be the dispositive factor or, or that that might sway him at all, but that might be a factor at least, in how the justice thinks about it, of, of what my legacy is going to be. Oh, well, it might be nice if one of my clerks takes over. It's almost like they, they have these family trees that step into these seats. It's interesting you mentioned Katanji Brown-Jackson because I saw her in action. I actually was in the D.C. courthouse. I was covering a hearing that she presided over with one of these congressional subpoena battles relating to the Mueller investigation and the impeachment. So I, they had me cover this for CNN, and I was in her courtroom. And I got to tell you, she was enormously impressive. I've seen very few judges ever, and I've been in front of dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred, I don't know, federal judges, who came this prepared. She knew the briefs as well or better than the lawyers. She was very much in control of her courtroom, and there was media there, and there were big ego attorneys there. She held this hearing together beautifully. She was very, she was kind. She created a nice courtroom atmosphere. She wasn't barking at people or talking down to people. And just the sharpness of the questions she asked, the intellectual sharpness of the questions that she asked went right to the heart of the matter. So I came out of there enormously impressed with her. And I think she'd be a really interesting selection. And of course, Joe Biden explicitly promised when he was on the campaign trail that he would nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. So perhaps Judge Brown Jackson will become Justice Brown Jackson in the near future. Ellie, I know you prepared one final question for me before we send you off into the real world. Uh, yes, I did. So Ellie, following up on, on the conversation about court reform, there's been a lot of discussion of judicial ideology. And undoubtedly, this is true in the criminal context. So when you were a prosecutor, did you ever feel like there were judges before whom you had to present a case totally differently than the median federal judge? Oh, I love this question. So I'm going to answer this. Yes, 
Two, did you ever feel like you had to present things differently to different judges? But no, based on politics. And I'm really, I I don't want to come off sounding like Pollyanna, SDNY guy, nothing's political, everything's justice and truth and facts and law and politics never come into play. But I mean this. So first of all, when it came to a jury, I tried to present the same way because juries are juries. The judge, you would have to make, you know, judges had different rules and different things they might like or not like. But I'm talking about more of a legal argument that you'd be presenting to a judge. Absolutely. We knew the book on every judge. This judge will read every single page and footnote of your brief, or this judge will not even look at your briefing papers. There were a few like that. We actually had, actually, I can say this. At the SDNY, there was a judge's guide. It was an internal document, and it would say things as big as this judge always messes up this one hearsay rule to this judge won't let you leave the podium or this judge will let you leave the podium but not touch the jury box. I mean, we had like the ultimate insider's guide to every judge, and you were supposed to add to it. Like if a judge showed that she liked her briefs at a certain font, you would note that, or if a judge said that, you know, you never have to ask for permission to approach the bench, we would note that. So yeah, all of those things we would know and study and get and and consider and, and take into effect. But was it ever political? I mean, honestly, I think if you took the list of the, I don't know, 50 or 60 or 70 different federal judges that I may have appeared in front of in the SDNY and just read down into me and said, was this person appointed by a Democratic or Republican president, I think I would do not much better than a coin flip. I mean, there's a handful I know for sure because they are my personal friends or whatever. But I mean, I'm just thinking about some of the judges, Judge Barbara Jones, Kimba Wood, Alvin Hellerstein, Judge Daniels. I have no idea, like sitting here right now. So would we think about it politically? Not at all. Were there certain judges known to be more pro-prosecution or tougher sentencers, more pro-defense? Absolutely. But did we ever tie that to a D or an R? No, not whatsoever. And I do think that the criminal realm is somewhat removed from these political cases. I mean, people, you know, we have this unfortunate thing that happens now, and it, it's it, I do it, and we have to do it in media, where when a judge makes a politically loaded or, or a politically impactful decision, you always say, nominated by so-and-so, right? And it shouldn't matter, but it does. But it really, I think, is is a step or two removed when it comes to the criminal context. I think it's a lot harder to say, this judge allowed in this piece of evidence, and he's a Bush nominee, or this, this judge gave that sentence, but she's a Clinton nominee. Again, it's reality. It's the real world. Judges are human beings, and you have to account for that. But one of the blessed things about being a DOJ prosecutor is politics do not come into play on that count. So Ellie, I will bid you adieu, young Ellie, as as you now enter the real world. I really look forward to seeing what you do. You're going to end up on the bench. I'm going to go on record right now in May of 2021 and say, you're going to end up on the federal bench. Some president, probably a Republican, is going to nominate you maybe 10, 15 years from now, and you'll be on the bench for the next 45 years after that. And uh, I look forward to attending your swearing in. So Ellie, thanks for being with us for these last several months. It's, it's been wonderful to have you. Well, Ellie, you've, you've been so kind and, and a lot of work, you know, between now and, and wherever my career goes. Just wanted to thank you and your staff really for the opportunity. Um, and I, I think 
dialogue is so important, right? So it's it's been so wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you every few weeks. And um, I've, I've so enjoyed talking with you and, and talking to your audience. And I'm wishing you all the best right back at you. Thanks, Ellie. Best of luck in the future. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Third Degree. As always, send us your thoughts, questions, comments to letters at cafe.com. Degree is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashore. The audio and music producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer Stanton, Noah Azulai, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley.